Hello and what's up, world? I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. Today is a special episode. We've never had two guests on this podcast. And for the first time ever, I present to you not one, but two guests. I'm really excited to introduce you to Coco and Breezy Dotson, twin sisters of Afro-Latinx descent. Coco and Breezy are DJs, models, actresses, designers, and most importantly, entrepreneurs. The duo started their company, Coco and Breezy Eyewear, in 2009 and have been making funky, accessible glasses ever since. Their products are available in over 400 retail locations and have become a major force within the industry. Their pieces have been worn by a ton of celebrities, including Prince, Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Kalani, Diddy, Sandra Bullock, Alicia Keys, and Serena Williams. It's funny, Coco and Breezy come from Minnesota, which is also where I'm from. And I remember seeing them at the Mall of America. I was probably 13 or 14. And I have this vivid, vivid memory of me seeing them walking through the mall and being like, yo, aliens must exist because these two people are 100% from another planet. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys remember seeing me? I don't remember seeing you, but I I remember being an alien. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. It It was majestic. It's like walking through the Mall of America. Let me paint the picture as like a lot of just normal people, plaid, flannels. Sweatpants, jerseys, Minnesota Viking stuff. <laughs> and then I just see these two people that I've never seen anything like them before. And I, I was just like, I was like, what is happening? Who are they? Aww. It makes me emotional, actually. It does? Like, I kind of want to cry. <laughs> yeah. Don't cry. <laughs> you could also be the first people on the podcast to cry. I'm, I'm, I'm tearing up. <laughs> I'll tell you why. You, you go for it. Coco. Read my well, mind. I, I'm too I, emotional. I think for me... I remember those times and the mall was our stomping grounds. And I remember walking through that mall and we'd always have sunglasses on because we knew that people were staring at us, but it was our alter egos. And we would walk through that mall with our mohawks, our piercings in our faces, Mm -hmm. our blue hair, our creeper boots. And we knew we were different, but we didn't really care that people were staring at us, but we kind of did. Yeah. You know, but we were still expressing ourselves. That's really interesting that the sunglasses acted as like protection or oh, like yeah. barrier? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, the glasses were definitely a level of protection for us. And that's why I'm emotional because I I know that from the outside we looked so confident, but we, we from the inside we were torn apart, feeling misunderstood. Wow. I mean I I can imagine it. So you guys were born in Indiana, lived in Memphis until you were seven, and spent the rest of your childhood and adolescence in Minnesota. Sounds like based on what I understand from the mall, it was a little bit alienating. Can you tell me more about your childhood? Well, I would say just to even go back again, we were born in Indiana, lived in the projects. Then we moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and it was very country. It was so country that at that time, but that was in the 90s. So we were there from 92 to 97. When we were in first and second grade, can you believe that they were allowed to paddle kids? Wow. So imagine going from the country where they were allowed to paddle kids and then moving to Minnesota to the suburbs and being the only women of color that had country accents. I don't have one anymore, <laughs> but we were very country. And yeah, it was such a different experience. I bet. And why did your parents move from Indiana to Memphis to Minneapolis or to Minnesota? 
Well, they moved from Indiana to Memphis just so Coco and I can have a better life since we were in the projects. And they moved from Memphis to Minnesota because (laughs) there were some other job opportunities for them that were, you know, when you're coming from a family that don't have full financial resources, they had to find their their other ways. So when we were younger, they, the story was that they wanted us to have better education because the education was slower there. Right. But then we found out some more stuff. <laughs> that we don't want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to share that when we write our memoir. Oh, I'm excited for that. And so what, what were mom and dad like? My mom and dad were the shit. Like, they're our best friends. Um, one thing is that even though our parents couldn't financially support us, they emotionally supported Coco and I. My mom and dad always say that Coco and I said that we were different since we were babies. Since we were like two years old, we knew that we were different. I mean, even our aunt, she told us that she would have to babysit us because, of course, there were two of us. And my mom was 25 when she had us. Oh, okay. And so she would babysit us. And she said that at two years old, we could she couldn't just sit us down to watch TV. We were always creative. We were always asking questions. We were always intuitive. It was difficult to keep us busy because we were always so different. And so growing up, our parents understood that. So they gave us so much freedom. And I think that really helped us. The freedom they gave us helped us because one, we weren't troublemakers at all because we knew that if we were going to be troublemakers, then our freedom would be taken away. Right. And so even though they couldn't financially fully support us, we literally had it all with our creativity and our self-expression. And self-expression, exactly. Which is actually so rare because I feel like a lot of people that come from a background of poverty, their parents don't really understand the need for expression or like outlets beyond get money. You know what I mean? And like, I know a lot of people never develop a voice and never even develop a sense of self because the financial burden blocks them from doing it. Like that's a very, that's like a fact. Like you can't go to after school programs, Mm -hmm. can't go to summer camp, can't- We didn't go to any of that. Of course not. And you couldn't, but it sounds like your parents created a really nurturing environment where they let you- figure it out on your own. And you guys also had each other to support or to lean on. Yeah, they really let us figure it out. And it was to the point where, you know, at 15, we got jobs at 15 years old. And when I look at 15 year olds now, I'm like, hold on, we were that young working. They don't have jobs. No, they don't have jobs. But you know what I did actually, (laughs) interestingly enough, I was like on a random forum on the internet once. Mm -hmm. And I was like looking at this kid and he was like, Instagram account for sale. And I was like, okay, this is an interesting person. I was just interested and curious as to who was selling an Instagram account. And I start like talking to him and I'm like, how old are you? He's like, I'm, I'm 15. I was like, oh, wow. I was like, where do you live? He's like, I live in Florida. I was like, wow. So I was, and, and then we just started like talking and he, I was like, what's your name? He was like, I won't tell you. Like, I'm not going to tell you. But he was like, this is what I do for wow. money. He's like, I, I get Instagram accounts. I turn them into meme accounts or Marvel comics accounts or fashion accounts, whatever it is. And then I turn around and I flip them for like $800, $1,500. And, wow. and it doesn't work. So mm. I think the kids now, they, they do work, but they work in mysterious ways. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. I mean, they have, they have way more resources than what we had. Of course. And yeah, back when we were growing up, like the internet was not as accessible in the sense that you couldn't find people like you and then meet up with them in real life because that was considered weird. It was, but guess what? We are weird. (laughs) That's how we actually stayed alive. Oh, so you actually did meet up with people. We, My whole network of best friends right now are people I met on the internet. Back then? Back then, MySpace. In like 2007. Wow. Maybe even 2005. Yeah, because we started using, we started being on the internet 
around 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. And we were the MySpace girls. Right. So when we would walk around the Mall of America, people would be like, y'all are the MySpace girls. Because wow. we had a lot of friends on MySpace. Right. And I think that's what saved us because in Minnesota where we felt not accepted, we felt like we were so different. There were people in New York that looked just like us with expressing their styles. They had the same interests as us. And that's what really helped us. And so we started traveling to New York when we were 17 to meet up with these people that we met on MySpace. And wow. some of those people are SZA, Sean Ross, Miguel, oh, Ro James. That's amazing. Carlton. Hugo Mosier. That early network game. And but are, it was just friendship. It was all, all friendship. friendship. It, was, it was internet friendship. And I think what, what that kind of shows is that we were all in our cities feeling like we were alone. And we were a tribe that kind of found each other. And now we're obviously all kind of the movers and the shakers in our industries. Right. And it almost reminds me of back in the day when like Puff and like B.I.G. And everybody kind of came up around the same time. It's like we're that new generation of, of that. That's incredible. And and so your mom is Puerto Rican. Yeah. And does she was she born in Puerto Rico? She wasn't born in Puerto Rico. Her parents were. Okay. And then our dad is African American and he grew up in Arkansas. Okay. So we grew up with like two strong cultures because our mom was her family's very they're traditional Puerto Ricans. And then on our dad's side, he's from the South. Mm -hmm. our, our parents are 14 years apart. So he grew up in Arkansas during segregation. My dad went to a segregated school. Wow. And my grandmother, she picked cotton as a job. And so it's crazy to have, and we're the next generation. So Matter of fact, we just got back from Arkansas. My dad showed me the ice cream shop he went to when things got integrated. Like there, he said I was the first black person that walked in there. Wow. And so it was crazy to, like, my dad's a walking history book. Right. So even with growing up with such strong cultures in our house, like, our Thanksgiving was popping. Like, mom's side, she was making, like, arroz con gondules. And my dad's side, like, fried catfish and greens and dressing. Like, both cultures are in there super strong. And I think growing up in Minnesota, we didn't appreciate that. I was embarrassed. Right. Like, our parents would send us to school— now I think about it, they hooked us up for lunch. But my mom would send me to school with like platanos and arroz con gondules and I would be so embarrassed. I wanted a bologna sandwich like everybody else and some chips <laughs> and like sure. a fruit roll up. No, you know? I had the same, I And now swear. I'm like, dang, my parents really hooked it up. I had like, the <laughs> same experience. And you know what happened to me is I was young and I think this was in middle school. It's fun on this podcast, just remembering all these weird things based on what other people say. Yeah. But my parents used to give me like Egyptian food mm -hmm. and put it in like Tupperwares and I would have this incredible lunch and then it would make my locker smell though. Mm -hmm. And so Same. I started getting bullied and picked on because I had a smelly locker and I was like, I don't want this shit food. Like I want to eat like a snack pack yep. and yes. a fruit roll up yep. and like have the American kid lunch, which yep. is horrible. Yeah. It's Terrible. like a peanut butter Terrible. jelly sandwich yep. and a snack pack and yep. a fruit roll up. And, <laughs> this, and I had this amazing feast, a literal feast. And I just was too embarrassed to, to, to like say, no, this is good food. I just didn't want to be different. Likewise. Yeah. I, I read that uh, great quote in a teen Vogue article. It was like, we grew up with an extremely Southern father and then an extremely traditional Puerto Rican mom. So culture for us is super strong. One day we'd have black eyed peas, catfish and grits for breakfast. And the next we'd have arroz con pollo for dinner. And to me, that sounds like honestly the best day ever. Yeah, <laughs> it, was. it was. And it's funny because, you know, when you grow up in it, you actually don't really know. 
like growing up having my mom be Puerto Rican and Breezy and I being mixed. I think that in Minnesota, there weren't a lot of Caribbean Latinas and Latinos. So they weren't used to one. They weren't used to seeing we're mixed, but then we consider ourselves as Afro Latinas. But you can go to Puerto Rico or you can go to DR or go to Cuba or anywhere else. And there are Afro Latinas that fully speak Spanish and they're fully Hispanic or Latin. And I think growing up in Minnesota, again, touching on that background, we were so shy because people are like, well, you're not Spanish enough or you're not black enough or you're not this. But moving to New York and being around other Afro-Latinas, it has really helped me like be so proud of my culture and embrace it. But I didn't realize how Puerto Rican mom was until I got to New York and lived in a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And I was like, hold on, we grew up doing this all the <laughs> I'm time. I'm like, this is why mommy did this. Stuff that used to embarrass us all the time. Like she'd be playing the congas at our apartment, like while friends were over and I would be so embarrassed. We weren't allowed to listen to rap music. It was only salsa and merengue. I was so embarrassed. Wow. And now I'm like, mommy was like the, the shit. J- yeah. Like she was really the jam. Or she still is. Or even with my dad, like my dad is the shit. He would wake up every morning at five o'clock in the morning and make us breakfast. Even if we had a friend that spent the night, he'll make us grits and catfish and eggs oh, before he went to work. That's incredible. And Good I, parents. And I would be embarrassed when my friends were over because I'm like, can you just make some pancakes and eggs and keep it simple? Like or worse, uh, put a <laughs> hot pocket in the microwave. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but now no. I'm like, our, mom and dad did that. They were the, I feel like my parents should honestly like write a book or do some type of a video of how to raise creative kids. Right. Because they really did. They did their thing. There's not one thing that I can complain about the way that our parents raised us. And we never had to rebel. Because they, and we never got in trouble. We were goody two-shoes because they gave us the freedom of self-expression. And they knew that we were individualists. I think since we came out the womb. Right. They had to have known. And and did you, you know, feeling different, it sounds like you you knew you were different. You looked different. You knew you were different. You could vibe. You could feel the vibe that other people were staring at you and stuff. Mm-hmm. How did you cope with that? Did you kind of just not give a shit what they thought or did you kind of like start hiding in the shadows a little bit like how, so was, how did you internally cope we care too much internally our actions look like we didn't can i cuss on here yeah our actions look like we didn't give a fuck mm-hmm. you know so it's like we cared so much internally like it made us really sad we got bullied hardcore so i can tell even as an adult there's certain things that it stems from being bullied. Right. But it never stopped our actions. We still went for it. And we still had our eye on the prize of being individualists and being true to who we are, no matter what room we're in. It might have hurt inside, but we still went for it. And I think a part of that is because we're twins and we had each other. So it also caused us like seclude ourselves mm-hmm. from people. And so we were stuck at the hip because we felt like we only had each other. It wasn't until maybe like the age of like 25 Right, Coco? Yeah, about 25. 25 is when we found our own individual styles, making our own individual decisions. But I think, it again, it only stemmed from, we. my mom and dad were like, if you guys don't have anybody, you have each other. other." And we stuck with that. That's really beautiful. And um, when you were getting bullied, did any of it ever feel like racism in any way towards either your Latina side or your black side? Or was it just general bullying? I have a story. So when we went to Chaska High School, I remember we had this principal named Mr. S. He was a jam. We would just sit in his office and eat his snacks. But that was our friend. Like wow. he looked out for us. And he he was cool because he, he so Chaska is suburban, but it's also kind of like 
near the country a little bit. And so um, he came from an inner city school. And so he also had, Mr. S had a little bit of soul in him. He wasn't African-American, but he had soul. <laughs> so he understood where we were coming from. Right. But one day we, every day coming to school, there's kids that had pickup trucks with Confederate flags lined up. It was trendy to have a Confederate flag on your pickup truck. And then one day we walked into school and in the bathrooms, they wrote, I hate the N word and I hate the S word. The S word for Latina people. Wow. And so, of course, I think a mix of it was was racism. But I also can't be mad at those kids because they are they were taught that. Their parents, I remember one kid at that school told me I was the first brown person they've ever seen in their lives for the first time. Wow. And so I think about it. There's a guy named Luke. He was the most racist kid in school. And towards the end of the school year, he like said hi to us. And it was a big deal because I think that he learned racism from his parents. And so it was a mix of that. Another thing that we got made fun of was I think Coco and I are so positive and through all the bullying, through all the hurt, through all the, the struggles at home, we always were very optimistic. Being optimistic and positive isn't a new thing for us. We, we've been practicing this since we were kids. And so weirdly enough, we got bullied for being too happy and we got bullied for being too positive. I remember this woman named Gabrielle and Breezy said, said, I'm saying all the names. I sure am. <laughs> <laughs> I am Gabrielle and Ariana. They were our friends. We thought they were our friends. And Coco and I went up to our lockers and they wrote something on our locker saying, we're the oh my gosh twins. Like we're always happy. And they denied it. And I knew it was them. And like, I don't know what it was, but I think people were intimidated by our happiness and they thought it was fake. Right. And I think that Coco and I, like when we give compliments, we, we love to bring the best out of people. Right. But that wasn't taken the right way. So they took it as being fake or again, being too happy or being too positive. Kids are mean. Mean yeah. as hell. And then, and then since we grew up most of our lives in the burbs, when our parents got divorced, our mom moved to a closer to the inner city, which was, she moved to an apartment that was closer to her job. And then our dad moved to Chaska, which was closer to his job, which was suburban, but more country suburban. And so we ended up going to, for a year and a half, we, going, we went to a middle school that was in the inner city. And there were young girls that were in there gang banging in seventh grade, claiming Bloods, Crips, GD. And a lot of people were gang banging in mm -hmm. middle school. And so we went from going from the burbs to that school. And we got bullied there too, because, you know, they're like, you guys talk like white girls. You're always happy. You don't want to go out and do this with us. And Breezy and I secluded ourselves and we never wanted to hang out with anybody after school. We wanted to just stay home. Like do art. And do art. And so I would never forget there was a time where there was a, a crew of people. They wanted to jump us. For just being, for being different. Different. Because you were different in both scenarios. Yeah. Which like is we, miserable. Yeah. Very miserable. Like and we, I, we, we have best friends to this day. Sharita, Danea, and Ashley were our from girls. That school. From that school. Still my friends. Ride or dies. But they always looked out for us because they knew that Coco and I weren't fighting. We weren't. I never. I never got in a fight. I never got in a fight in my life. But they were the friends that they knew that we got bullied so much that if they knew that someone even looked at us a certain way, they always had our backs and they always they protected us. That's dope. And that's something that I'll never in my life forget. And sometimes people would be so mean to us. I wouldn't even tell Sharita, Danea, and Ashley because I knew that. They would go up to them. Right. And, and confront them. And confront them. Yeah, Sharita to this, we're the godparents of Sharita's kids. Like, that's our girl. But I don't even think she knows how big of a impact she truly made in our lives. And she really protected us. And so at this time, you, you were kind of looking internally rather than externally for 
outlets, right? And that is art. And what kind of art were you guys making? Oh my gosh. We were always into something. Well, we were- it started when we were two. My mom and dad said, but Coco and I made out of like our little blankets, we like folded it up and made bunny rabbit ears. <laughs> and then we would take my mom's sheets and, and like curtains and curtains and like sew dresses. We, and, got, we got in so much trouble. We took then, all her sheets and, and, and curtains and cut them up and made stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like pillowcases. And then they would always buy us like beads. So we'll be making like bracelets. We'll be painting. We were always making something. We were never the kids that were just sitting in front of the TV. Ever. That's amazing. Ever. That's so amazing. And so you're making all of these projects. You're having a lot of fun. And your dad has a stroke. And your mom goes back to school. Yep. Yep. Which lifts, leaves you guys with no choice but to get a job yes. at an early age of 15. Mm-hmm. I have a similar experience. I started working when I was 14. I didn't have a father that had a stroke. My mom didn't go back to school, but my parents wouldn't buy anything for me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'm going to get a job and I'm yeah. by myself. And I worked at McDonald's, made $5.05 an hour. Yep. I worked there for, I think, two years or three years. Uh, I remember I got a raise. It went from $5.05 an hour to $5.15 an hour. Yep. You got, you're probably doing it, huh? Oh, I had a Dodge Neon yes. paid for myself. Yep. I had a Vespa scooter. I had any clothes. I would go to Burlington Co. Factory, yeah, Burlington. get the Fat Farm shirts, yes. the Sean John jeans, and no one could say anything to me. Because otherwise, my dad was like, we're going to Kmart. I'm like, I'm not going to Kmart. Yep. You know? And the real interesting thing about that is that I realized after doing this podcast is I was like, yo, I never stopped working. Mm-hmm. I like, started when I was 14 and then I just never stopped. Yeah, I same. never like took a gap year. I never like mm-hmm. went to Italy or whatever and like studied abroad. Like just yep. worked, worked all the way through high school, college. And then now tell me about your experience and where you worked and how that kind of formed your ethic. Well, can well, I say one thing? I just feel like, and it sounds cliche, but I feel like the universe is always on our side. It's like, it's just something that, there's a pattern in our life now that I really think about it because even all the jobs that we've had, they always said that they never hire family members and they never hire <laughs> siblings. So <laughs> we, we've been breaking rules since day one, yeah. okay? When we were 15, our friend Oin, who was like our best friend, she was working at Lian Chen. And you, do you know Lian Chen? I know. Li- I, li- I actually like Lian Chen. Oh. So <laughs> that was, those are our stomping grounds. Yes, that was our first job. Yeah, I was in LA like a couple weeks ago and... I couldn't, and I was like gonna go to a show, and there was no restaurants around because it's L.A. except for a Lian Chin. They have Lian Chin in L.A. Maybe it was a Panda Express. It's Panda Express in L.A. My but it's same same Lian thing. Chin, it's like it's a similar concept, right? So everyone gets a visual. It's the same thing as Panda Express, but in Minnesota. It's in Minnesota. As but Lian Chin. oh, is Lian Chin only in Minnesota? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Oh. So our homegirl Oin, she had a job at Lian Chin. I think she was sixteen at the time. We were fifteen. And she's like, just come up here, put in an application, and I'll put a good word in for you guys. I'm like, okay, perf. <laughs> and she's like, they don't hire fam- family members, but just try it out. So Coco and I both went in there, put in our application. Ambitious. <laughs> and we got hired. Like, What'd you wear? Probably you know, some rock star shit. We, we, we literally like <laughs> chopped and screwed the uniforms. Like, I remember- <laughs> so we both get hired, and we would come in there with like, the uniform was like these black shirts and like you could wear black pants and like black shoes. But we would always wear like crazy jewelry and <laughs> colorful hair and colorful lipstick, black lipstick or like blue lipstick. But we were, when we were working there, we were ready to roll our sleeves up. We wanted to learn everything and we never complained. And even with our uniforms on, customers would tell us like, you, there's something about you too. There's something different. different about you. So that's where that started. 
And I would say the work ethic started there too, because literally I loved my job. When I had to clean the bath, I still have memories of cleaning the bathroom. Never complained. Never complained cleaning the bathroom. We never went to a prom. We never went to a, any dance because guess what? When everyone else took off of work, everyone knew Coco and Breezy would take your shift. Wow. You, you guys took, really did not give a fuck. No. no. We took everyone's shifts. Every, we, we took so many people's shifts at other locations will call us what? to when, take their shifts. Yep. That's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when we, so halfway through our, I think we just turned 15, got the job in October. Yeah. And which location? I'm just curious. It was the one in Chaska. Oh, I didn't know that one. Yeah. Or Chanhassen. And it was funny because the manager found out that we weren't supposed to be working all the hours that we were working at 15. It was illegal. So he had to have a talk with us because we were literally working, I think like 25 hours a week or something. I think you're supposed to, you're supposed to work when like 17 15, hours you or something. Like yeah, 15 or something. I think it's like, I think it's like 20. Yeah. Seven, like 17, that. 20, something. Whatever like it was, we were working more than that. And so he found out that we weren't supposed to be working a certain amount of hours and we had to wait until we were 16. And so our hours got cut and we were crushed because we were working so many hours. And he was like, you know, you have to wait till your 16th birthday to like work all the hours you want to. And so that was kind of heartbreaking for us. But once we turned 16, we're like, all right, we're going to keep this job and get a second job. So we were working two jobs. Another one. So we worked yeah. at, at, do you remember a demo? Demo sold like the Fat Farms, FUBU, Baby Fat, like back in the day oh, I don't at the mall. It was, it was like at the Mall of America? Mall of America, but it was a jam when like Baby Fat was like lit. It was called Demo? Yeah. It was like know, the height remember. of like- I only remember Metro Park. Oh, we worked so at Metro Park. That was too. afterwards. But I was Metro say, Park was very dope. What, what's nostalgic exactly. about Demo, I would say, is that when we worked there, there were a, a lot of artists that would come in there. And celebrities. And celebrities that would buy outfits. And now there's certain people that I'm like, now we're kind of in the same caliber. I'm like, hey, I remember when you came wow. to my job. I sold you jeans. <laughs> but now we're friends. Like, <laughs> or even like we just did a shoot for Betsy Johnson. I was like, I used to sell your product. Uh, oh, because you worked there too? Yeah. No, oh, because it was in Demo. It was in Demo and Metro, Metro Park. Wow. But I think the bigger part. No, the funny part is when we did Demo. So since we worked so many hours, I did the interview for me, went home, got dressed the interview for Coco. No. And pretended to be her. No. You, you did? Yes, girl. Tiffany always reminds us that I pretended to be you. Oh, yeah. Yes. And they also said that they don't they, hire family members and they hired us together. Wait, and and have you guys done that before? Oh, the, that was the first time. I think because I was working at Lee and Chen oh. or something. Yeah. yeah and I, I think the bigger portion of, even though we worked at retail and food places, the biggest thing that we got out of it was by the time we were 18, we were working three jobs each and we were working hours. Like I'm talking about our days would start at 9 a.m. No, like 7 or 7 a.m. 5 a.m. if there was a floor set. But that's what I'm saying. They would start either like 5 a.m. or 7 a.m. and they wouldn't end until 1 a.m. Because we were going from one job to another. And then when you're working in retail, you have to do floor sets. So then we would go to the next one. When we had the three jobs, if I ended up getting a shift that was at one of the other retail locations, then Breezy would have, she would have stayed at, like we were just like working each other's schedule. Right. You know what I think about? We were it's really genius. smart it's, it's actually genius. at that age because we never really got double, like we, however we did our availability. Yeah. <laughs> we like kind of, we kind of like killed it. <laughs> yeah. We, un we understood organization because we never got double like high or double booked to work. But then also you would take, you would stay longer at a job if I got added on a shift and then I would, you know, fight That's in. so smart We made though. it work. That's smart. But That's that really built our work ethic because even though we were working in retail and we were working in food, I loved my job. You couldn't tell me anything. Never and each job we worked at, random people would come up to us and tell us that we were different. Right. Like, I can see it. 
I mean, I don't know, like, like my like my little anecdote. I saw y'all in the mall. <laughs> yeah. And then even though our position was serving food, I was going to the back to the, with the cooks and saying, can you teach me how to cook? Right. I was in the dishes, washing the dishes. <laughs> when the manager was counting the money and doing operations, I'm like, can you teach me that? You know? And so, so was the desire to work so hard, was it because of money or was it because of time? You wanted to have time well spent or was it really like, we want to help financially pitch in for our family. We don't, we want to take like some of the burden off our parents and let's just make it ourselves. Like what was the real motivation behind all it that was work? Independence and family. We had no choice, but we had to help the family out. I mean, we grew up with our parents telling us like this Christmas, I might not be able to get you guys a gift or I might have to wait till like next month. And that was okay with us. Right. And so it had a lot to do with our parents not being able to financially support us. It was just our time to buy our own school clothes Buy a car. We bought our first car at 15. And it was waiting for us when we turned 16. What else? We were just always financially getting it. Yeah. Uh, and I bet your parents are so proud of you. I know that from looking at your Instagram stuff, I saw you're like you had your dad like model some some That's eyeglasses for you. Yes. Your mom plays congas yes. on set. Like Those are my best I can't friends. imagine how proud they are oh my to God. see that how far you've come. I mean, it's truly incredible. And I love that you you know, you don't shut them out of the experience because a lot of people would shut their parents out of the experience, not because of any animosity, totally. but because of the same embarrassment that you face as a child. Many people still face as adults, yeah. but you're very visible and loving and open about your relationship with your family, which I think is a positive that everyone needs to see. You know what I can say I learned through this whole experience of going through a financial struggle with like our parents, their situations and us just going through bullying and then also getting our first jobs, we learned emotional intelligence at a very young age. Very young age. And I think that we didn't go to college, but one thing that we learned was emotional intelligence. We learned to be able to like get knocked over and figure that shit out. Mm -hmm. You know, get knocked over and not allow stress or not allow um, the pressure to make our decisions. Don't say yes to something or don't make a decision based off of emotions. Of course. Actually like step back and analyze the situation because we had to start doing that at such a young age. Be logical. Yeah. yeah. So I think that when I'm thinking about it right now, like going through all those challenges, that's one thing I can say through the struggles, Coco and I, even though like we were sad, we had moments of being sad because I don't want to seem like I was emotionless, but we were fucking strong. Right. We were strong and we pushed through it and we never let that ever affect us or we never made a decision based off of emotions, based off of negative emotions, unless it was like pushing us forward. Okay. So let's talk about now the big, big moment I think everyone's been waiting for. Um, <laughs> so it's 2009. You're 19 years old. I read this quote by Breezy in an article. So we thought we have nothing to lose. People don't understand us in Minnesota. So we might as well not be understood in New York. We had no idea if people were going to get us or not. So we quit our jobs, sold our car, moved to New York with nothing, just our dream and our passion. And we were already unstoppable. That's amazing. Thank you. I can't imagine coming to New York City at age 19. Yeah. I came when I was I can't 25. imagine either. <laughs> I can't imagine doing that now. I don't know how we did it. Tell me why. <laughs> because literally the day before we were about to fly out to New York, the friend that we were supposed to stay with said we couldn't stay with him. But guess what? We went on Twitter and said, can we stay with someone? 
you were early Twitter user. Early, early, early Twitter, early. early MySpace. We are early internet Cause, people. Because I think Twitter didn't come out till 2008. And like, I don't think anyone even used it till like 2012. Yeah, no, we were on it. We transferred our MySpace <laughs> friends to Twitter. That's and then we transferred Twitter to Instagram. Instagram. Oh my God, that's genius. But um, we posted on Twitter and we said, is there anyone we can stay with? This is the day before. The day of when we like landed. Oh, you literally got to New York. Yeah. And then your friend was like, you can't stay here. Yeah. Oh, no. He told us the day before, but you know. Oh, okay. But you were like, you still can't. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there was one friend that we didn't know him, but he knew some of our friends. So it felt validated. Derek. Derek. And shouts out to Derek. Yeah. Shout out to Derek because Derek was like, you guys can stay on my couch as long no, as you No, he even let us oh, stay. No, in he said, bed. you guys can stay in my bed. I'll stay on the couch. That's a nice guy. And you guys can stay as long as you want. And stay at my house and literally I have memories of being in the studio apartment I'm thinking about it right now it makes me emotional thinking about it yeah we were in his studio apartment Mm -hmm. in the Bronx yep I remember those long walks to Mm -hmm. his apartment and literally we were like all right since we were so independent we didn't want to depend on on being in his place Mm -hmm. and so we it's so weird and magical but we had our our we had angels with us we had angels with us anywhere we went for the first like two weeks, people were buying our glasses off our face. We weren't, we weren't selling, selling them, them to people. They were, they were literally, literally saying, can I buy those glasses? Yes. There were times wow. when we would go to the club and they're like, I need those glasses. Can I buy them? I will never forget this moment. I was in the train station at 14th Street getting ready to swipe my car. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, here's $100. I support local artists. Wow. We weren't, And we weren't even selling. We were just literally being ourselves. That's- Maybe being ourselves, people probably thought we were a walking art installation or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's amazing. And so that's like happening the first couple of weeks. Yes. yes. So you immediately were like, okay. Oh my God. This works here. But can I even say a backstory though? Just even a little bit before that. Yeah. Is even before that, Coco, just to put it into context. When we came, we came here to visit in August, a few months before we actually moved here, but we applied to work at jobs because in our heads, we're like, oh, if we get a job, we have retail experience on lock. Like we'll get a job in no time. So during that visit, we applied at multiple places mm-hmm. and told our parents that, hey, you know, we're going to apply at clothing stores so that we can move to New York for the security. And so we went back to Minnesota and Topshop called us to do a, a group interview. And they're like, hey, do you guys live in New York? And we're like, yeah, we live in New York. We didn't. I did the same thing. Yeah, you know, I'm like, heck yeah, we do. <laughs> and so that's what kind of pushed us to move. forward to move to New York so soon. We get to New York and we didn't get the job. And we never had a job since Lee and Chin and Metro Park. We've been doing this full time since we landed in New York. That's but unbelievable. Shout out to Topshop because they're a huge part of our, our story. Because I think us getting that phone call and that interview, it, it pushed us to move to New York so soon right? because we thought we were going to have a job. But actually, I think that in life, we have to step back and analyze those situations. And I'm a big believer that like things aren't a coincidence. And so that right there, that little scenario, we could have taken it in a negative way and been like, dang, I don't have the job. I'm going to go back home. But for us, we're like, okay, this brought us to New York. It's fucking go time. Like, let's get it. And I remember, I actually, I, I'm having now another memory where I remember going to your website, like back in 2009, and I was still in Minnesota, I think. Wow. And I was like, damn, these are like, these shades are too, too. I, I can't wear them yeah. uh, because I live in Minnesota. I would definitely wear them now. Um, but I was just like, you were making every one of those by hand. Yes. And you would just buy, gla- it was like that, it was the same kind of like Pyrex kind of like Virgil type of thing where it's just like buy these glasses and then 
put our cocoa and breezy touch on them. Yep. And it was crazy. We didn't sleep. Because you were just making so many pairs. Making so many pairs. Just like how many do you think you would make like on your biggest month? Like a hundred pairs custom? Probably like a couple hundred. That's like insane. literally we would breezy and I were taking shifts. Where so after we stayed with our friend for the two weeks, we finally found a room that we were able to rent. And we rented this little room that was had no windows. The size of an air mattress. The size of like smaller a, than this room. Yeah, it was smaller than this room. <laughs> and we're in about a twenty square foot space yeah. right now. And you um, rent oh, you actually got a lease. It wasn't or like a lease, or it was sub, sublease. Sublease, yeah. And it was like five hundred dollars a month, you know. And oh my God, I love that. I love those kinds of stories. You know, and yeah, I mean the, the person we rented from was crazy. But you I, have to go through that. Do they live there too? Yeah. And they were nuts. <laughs> we went through it, but it was worth it. You know, you always go through those stories. No, it's the best. It's what makes you. But we wanted to are. be in New York, you of know, course. but we were, Breezy and I would take shifts. And so since we had an air mattress, because we couldn't afford a regular mattress and we were making glasses with studs and spikes. Can you believe that our mattress popped? popped and it got a hole. So every night no. we'd be like, we'd be sitting on our bed <laughs> making glasses. To the floor. It would deflate to the floor. And then in the middle of the night, Pump up the air a little bit more. Yep. And then, you know, but I think that experience, we never, compl- I never complained. We never looked at it as like, we didn't, we never thought we were struggling. Yeah, we never like, thought, even though we, now I think about it, I'm like, damn, we were struggling, but we never looked at it that way. Right. Like our perspective and our like perception of life and like the way that we saw it was, it was a part of the story and we were just happy to be here. I love that you say part of the story. Yeah, that's how I frame all, a lot of like, I guess the difficulties that occur. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's part of the story. It yeah. makes the story a lot better. Because that story, if, if you would come here and just say like, oh, we got a great room in like, you know, South Williamsburg and <laughs> had an apartment and great roommate and, you know, we just like found someone and they set up a website for us. And we started selling glasses. Oh, Not oh very gosh. interesting. Nope, no, but no. all of these anecdotes are just like incredible. I feel like, you know how some people live on their accolades? My accolades are all the challenges I've gone through because I, I was able to figure them out. Right. And so you're putting together glasses one by one, selling them to whoever will buy them. Mostly people that just say... Hey, those are cool. I'll give you a hundred dollars or a couple of web orders here and yeah. there. And then what is like the turning point where where you're like, yo, this like we could be entrepreneurs, we could be CEOs, we could be owners of something special. Like when did it morph from like a side hustle and something that you were doing until you got a job or whatever to being, oh, this is it. This is what we're doing. I mean, I think even it started off with still doing the studded glasses that we were hand making. But there was a blog back in the day called Concrete Loop. And Concrete Loop was one of the first blogs. Mm-hmm. And they did a story on us. They had a really big Atlanta following. They had a really big East Coast following. And when she wrote that story, our sales went crazy. So that's when we couldn't sleep at night because we were fulfilling our own orders. Mm-hmm. But we were doing like $10,000 like weekly in sales. That's incredible. We were, we were doing we were sales. Yeah. I would say what really was a turning point there's, I feel like there's two turning points. Yeah. The first turning point was us getting out of doing DIY and manufacturing real glasses. Right. We have this mentor named Sharifa. She's a badass. Really dope. But one of our best friends, Brittany, she introduced us to, to Sharifa. And I remember sitting down with her. She's so intimidating. Like, because she's just such an amazing, powerful woman. And she was like, my friend Brittany's like, yeah, this is Coco and Breezy. They just moved here. They already have, at that time, three months in, we had Ashanti, Nicki Minaj, Lady Gaga. She's like, they wear their glasses. I want to introduce you. And she's like, oh, well, I'm going to call my niece. And if she doesn't know them, then like, 
okay, I don't know who they are. Wow. And it was perfect timing. Again, I'm telling you, the uni- universe <laughs> is on our side. Her friend, Stefan, walked in and he was like, I just saw you guys in so-and-so magazine. I'm like, perfect yes. timing. Check, check, check. <laughs> and um, so Sharifa has been a really big mentor to us. And she had a trade show called Project. Oh, yeah. Even I know about that. And yeah. I'm just a regular old guy. Exactly. <laughs> and so she was like, if you guys, you guys need to stop making the DIY and make real product. If you make real product, figure it out and I'll give you a booth for free. And so Dwayne, who's our co-founder, he already had some expertise in like supply chain and, and manufacturers. And so we used the last bit of our money to create like two styles. Or, I think it was like three. Or, or three four. styles. And the last bit of our money to go to Vegas. And the last bit of our money to get a hotel. And I remember like packing up like avocados and like tuna in our suitcase. Because we're like, we don't have food for money for food, but like we're, we're going to get there. And so we figured out how to design and manufacture glasses. And we created these samples. And it was so funny because we could only afford to make three styles. And so we like had like three of each of the styles and like we spread them out to make it look like we had more products. <laughs> <laughs> and we never we had no idea how to even we're like what is a trade show and so we get there we set up shop and I'm like okay what do we do next and we had a friend that Dan from Xanaro he, he gave us some really good advice yeah and he like gave us a list of like buyers for, he's like shoot an email to all these buyers and like set up an appointment and we did that and we ended up writing like 50,000 in sales wow and so I always say scared money doesn't make money of course because it was that time to just like, we use, again, the last bit of our money to create those styles. But I think the bigger turning point was, I think since we knew that was our bootstrappy mind. And then we had to step back and, and understand that we're actually creating something that can be scalable. Mm-hmm. And we really immerse ourselves with other founders, other like women founders that have scaled companies, that have raised capital. And that was something that we had no idea about. Like our families know nothing about raising capital. They know nothing about scaling a company. So Coco and I really took the time out a couple of years ago to educate ourselves and really say, what is missing in the market? Like, what is our value proposition? What are we really doing? And Mm -hmm. how can we really scale and grow this company? Right. And again, like we come from our family, a dad who grew up in segregation and we had cousins in and out of jail. We have, our brother was killed from being shot. You know, like we come from a family that in America, in Black America, of poverty. That's, we have that, those stories. Those are our stories. Those are our stories every, every day. day. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we've done so much. But again, we didn't have knowledge in thinking, oh, I'm going to start this idea. I'm going to go raise capital. Zero idea at all. Right. And so we really had to, two years ago, we stepped back and we're like, hold on. In order for us to learn, we need to like immerse ourselves in that space. And really, really learn. And I really thank my boyfriend, Julian, mm-hmm. because he was the one that like introduced me to that world and really inspired me and taught me a lot. And then I took that and ran with it. And I would say like 95% of our friends now are all people in like the tech space and people that or are BC. either VCs or people that are founders. Like that's our world now. Right. And now I'm super, I'm super fully immersed. So I think that it's so important that if you want to get into a space, you have to create it. We literally said, all right, we need to like get more friends that are in that space. And it's the only way. I mean, I, I have a similar story. Like, you know, my parents were immigrants and my dad always wanted to start a business and kind of toyed with it. And he did start like little businesses and stuff, mm-hmm. but nothing that required outside investment, nothing mm-hmm. that required 
language like term sheets and mm-hmm. interest rates and you know and equity and so on. So for me, I had no idea what I was doing, and so I relied on what has generally worked for me, which is which is number one, finding people and talking to them. Mm-hmm. Number two, I was like just watching TV and movies about entrepreneurs, yeah. whether it was fiction or nonfiction, I would watch Shark Tank. I would watch yep. like, like Blow. That's a bad example, but <laughs> works. Um, and then listening to podcasts, like I was listening yep. to this podcast called Startup, mm-hmm. which was actually like my version of an MBA, right? Like right. all these words, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm going to start a company. Here's what I need. I need like money. How do I get money? Listen to this podcast. And it's like, well, you got to find VCs. I'm like, what's a VC? Yeah. Boom. <laughs> that's, a, that's what a VC. Okay, great. Blah, 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 blah. And just emulating because... We don't have the, even not just the knowledge, but even the idea that it's possible, right? Like that part was even the bigger hurdle. And a lot of times I'd be sitting in rooms and just being like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, Mm -hmm. do these people know that I don't know what I'm doing? Right. And then what I realized is no one knows what they're doing. Yes. We talked about that today. No, no one knows what they're doing. Everyone just trying to make it seem like they do. Yeah. But literally no one knows. And the reason that they ask questions is because they don't know, which is nice. So you guys like really start looking at the business and say, this can't be just a DIY operation. We've already had all these celebrity endorsements. We've already made custom pairs for a bunch of celebrities. We've already done huge brand partnerships with mm-hmm. Samsung and the like. And then you start operating it like a company mm-hmm. and you get into 400 retail locations. You start, you know, working on what, tell me what else you're working on I with, mean, with, the, with the eyewear. I mean, now we're raising capital mm-hmm. and our, our team is small right now. And I think that um, for a long time we wanted to raise, but we, again, we weren't really knowledgeable. Right. But I also think that we were we had something ingrained in us from, I don't know, it could be like part of our ancestors that <laughs> there's something ingrained in us where we felt like we were asking someone for money. And it was so difficult to get to the space to feel like, hold on. No, I'm asking you for a partnership. Right. To be part of like this I'm ride. asking you if you want to be a part of this cool shit I'm building. Of course, for sure. But it literally took us a while. Like we had this like this feeling that was so it was so difficult for us to get to that point. But um, I'm really excited about where we're taking the company now, mm-hmm. and I feel confident as founders that we're gonna scale this to be like the biggest eyewear company. I mean, yeah, just this the journey n- just- is crazy. I was telling you earlier that I cried. It was a good, you know that, but you know when you have a good cry? Yeah. It wasn't a sad cry. Right. It was a good cry. And there's some crying. I don't know what it is, but like maybe some endorphins were like all over the place, but it was a cry that after I got done, you know how you feel when you get done working out? That's how I felt after I cried. That's amazing. Yeah. It was kind of nice. I have no doubt in my mind <laughs> that you guys are going to absolutely kill it because getting it to this level bootstrapped is mm-hmm. already more successful than most of these companies, they get, you know, a couple million dollars out the gate and mm-hmm. then just disappear overnight. Because yep. the most important thing is like, you can't just build a brand nope. with money. It nope. doesn't work. You can't build a following with money. It's just going to be low engagement. It's going to be low repeat mm-hmm. purchases. It's not going to be about the lifestyle. It's just going to be another, it's, it's like, sorry to bash on, you know, a mattress company or something, but mm-hmm. like, you know, that war of mattress companies, there's now like 15 or 20 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. How much money can you spend? Yep. And get people to buy the mattress. Exactly. You know, but it's not about a lifestyle. We, talk, we, we use the mattress industry. We use that a lot because I think that since but we're big fans of what Warby Parker is doing. Right. But I think since they were first 
in the eyewear D2C world, sometimes people are like, oh, but Warby Parker is already doing it. And the eyewear industry is such a big market. For sure. That I think that since they're the pioneers, a lot of people aren't educated about the eyewear space. And I use the example of the mattress space is that the mattress space is actually super oversaturated. Right. And it's the mattresses are the same thing. It's just different branding. Right. Versus Warby who was killing it with like convenience and like great price points. But then we're creating a luxury experience at an affordable price point and it's different branding. Right. And so and- we, they, we need more brands like Warby in us. And we, there's still so much more space for other eyewear companies to come in. For sure. I just got reading glasses for the first time and it's crazy. I didn't even consider Warby once. And I think it's because I'm just not that guy. Right. You know, like Warby now has a audience or a buyer and I'm not that buyer. I don't want to associate with that tribe because when I think about Warby and, you know, I'm apologizing already to anyone that's listening to this podcast that wears Warby's. If they're you, do it. You know, like they look good on you, do it. But for me, I wanted something that was a little more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Or like that fit my taste and was an expression of myself. I didn't want to just be able to say, oh, I got these from Warby like everyone else because it almost becomes like going to lens crafters at this point if you like, you know, really think about it. So I, I totally understand what you're doing. So give me, I, I need to hear the entire story from beginning <laughs> to end about the sunglasses that you made from... With Prince? For Prince. Oh my gosh. Okay. By the way, I'm going to be Prince for Halloween. Oh, oh. that's that's cool. Well, don't <laughs> don't get the knockoff glasses. We never, we never... Are you like a crazy Halloween partier? I'm only asking because... I like outfits. It's a possibility that we might let you pull the three lens glasses. Uh, no, 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 no. No, girl. Because we only have... They're limited edition. So if they get lost, I am going to be... No, I- Sad. I'm going as Purple Rain Prince. Okay. Okay. Yeah, cool. I'm going as Purple Rain Prince. <laughs> yeah. That specific movie era. Yes. Perfect. Style. A different look. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But um, so we met him because someone from his team reached out to us on Facebook, and they said, "Hey, Prince wants to meet you." We didn't write <laughs> Sorry, him back. We didn't like... write him back because if a random person that you can't Google hits you up and says that Prince wants to meet you, I didn't even associate it with Purple Rain Prince. I'm thinking that it's like you know how some rappers on like. SoundCloud, everyone is a young something and everyone's a Prince somebody. Right. So <laughs> I didn't associate it with, with Purple Rain Prince. Like, I'm like, Prince Prince. Yeah. Didn't write him back. Maybe like a month or a couple weeks go by. And my friend calls me and she goes, hey, her name is Maya. And she goes by Shameless Maya. She goes, hey, y'all, um, Prince has been trying to get in touch with you guys. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what Prince are you talking about? She's like, Prince, Purple Rain Prince. And I'm like, what? She's like, yes, I've been working with him and he's been talking about you guys. And he said someone reached out from his team. I'm like, girl, let me call you right back. I need to find that Facebook message and call this number. <laughs> so I hang up with Maya, call that number. And I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I think you said Prince wanted to meet us. And he goes, yeah, Prince wanted to meet you guys, but he changes his mind a lot. And since this message is from two weeks ago, I don't know if he's still going to be interested. Mm-hmm. I I was so I was we like, were crushed we were crushed we're like did we miss our opportunity <laughs> what I'm like Maya can you please like say our name again to him and so then I don't know if you know but Bree and I Breezy and I used to be dancers dancing was oh, life back in the day so in Minnesota we actually used to we were in a dance group and we used to backup dance for a lot of the artists we were always doing something and so we were backup dancers for a lot of artists in Minnesota you know local artists but um Prince saw one of our old dance videos from like 
maybe from 12 years ago or something. Because <laughs> he like stalked us, he on, stalked YouTube. us on YouTube. That's so and funny. so a couple weeks later, we get a call or email and someone from his team is like, hey, Prince wants to know if you guys can go to New Orleans to perform and dance with one of his artists at the Essence Festival. So I'm like, what artist does he want us to perform with? And we don't even dance anymore. We don't anymore. even dance anymore. Like we haven't performed in like 10 years. So I don't even know if we can still like you. I can still dance, but I don't know if I can like perform. But I'm like, yeah, we can do it. <laughs> yeah, always say <laughs> Of yes. course we can. So little do you know, the next day we're getting flown out to New Orleans. We were in this big rehearsal space with his band. It's massive. It's massive band. I'm still wondering who are we performing with? Then we get to the dance rehearsal with all the dancers. And he wanted and all he, the dancers to wear our glasses. Yeah, so we bring our glasses and he and the choreographer was like, hey, y'all, he wants you guys to perform with us for Raspberry Beret. And, and he like, just wants you guys to be on stage by yourselves. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on. So he didn't tell us that we were flying out here to dance with him. He said we were dancing with one of his artists. Wow. So now it's time for Prince to walk into the room of the rehearsal because they, they did the full rehearsal with him watching it on like FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And then it was time for him to actually get there. And so I would never forget this time. I'm thinking like, all right, we're about to meet Prince. And you know how when you're around certain legends or people, they have this aura where you feel like, I don't know if I should talk to them. Of for course. some reason, we had this, I had this feeling like Prince was my friend already. <laughs> and so when the dancers were there, they knew since when Prince was walking and they went to the back. For me, I'm like, Prince invited us here. I'm about to just sit on this couch that I know he's about to sit on. Because we're his guests. Mm-hmm. And so he walks in, you know, they're like, five seconds, two seconds, one second, uh, half a second. And he comes in. There's a whole timer to it. He walks in and I will never forget. He comes up to us and he goes, gives us the biggest hug. Biggest hugs in the world. Yeah. He goes, Coco and Breezy, thank you for being here and you're going to make me famous. Mm-hmm. He told us that. Oh. I was like, Prince, no, you're going to make us famous. That's the most beautiful thing. And I'm like, do you really? You like fought gonna- us on that. I'm like, Prince, you really think that we're gonna make you famous? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so then, long story short, we ended up performing with him, and I kind of messed up. No, so before we got on stage, he was like, "Don't mess up." I was like, Prince, I am not gonna mess up. <laughs> Wait, did he specifically say that to yes, you? Yes, he said both of us. Yeah. Oh, like, to both of you. I was like, Prince, I got this. I'm not gonna mess up. He said it in a funny way, and we like we didn't mess up in a like, we didn't mess up. It just that the choreographer sent us out on stage like to. Too, too early, early or it was something either too early or too late so we like it was something like it wasn't our fault right and so oh my gosh after that performance when we went backstage i was a wreck my stomach dropped i'm like prince is not gonna mess around with us anymore he doesn't want to be our friend he's probably gonna, he's so pissed like i literally literally joked back and forth for a whole like two minutes of joking about messing up and so i'm talking to my friend damaris who also worked with prince and who was a close friend of his i'm like I'm like, Damaris, is he not going to want to like talk to us anymore? And she's like, he, maybe he saw it. Maybe he didn't see it. Finally, he comes up to me. He goes, you know, I saw that. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. So then I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? But then he ended up inviting us to go to the after party. And we were, you know, me, me and Breezy. Well, no, even before that, he had these glasses on. I'm like, Prince, let me see those glasses. He had these circular, like circular frames on. And for me, they weren't good quality. So I was just like kind of like bashing the glasses he had on. Prince, like, like, Prince, these are whack. You yeah. said it to him? Yeah, like oh, these are whack. amazing. Like you need our glasses. But he's like, no, no, he's the one who said like, I need a pair of your glasses then. So now after this is happening, we're like in close, you know, we're hanging out with him all the time. So he went to New York. Well, no, the best, you're forgetting the best part, oh, girl. the best part? So after the performance, <laughs> everyone knows Coco and I 
we're not partiers and we're like grandmas. We don't like going out. Or we're like, much. go, we'll go back to the hotel or go home to like work or like chill. And so everyone's like, you guys aren't going to go to the after party. Prince wants you to be there. We're like, no, yeah. we're going to, we're going to go home back to the hotel. And, and they're take like, a nap. And they're like, are you serious? And so we're like, okay, fine, we'll go. So I remember being, there was like three SUVs. The first SUV was for Prince. No, the body, yeah, for Prince. The second one was, I think it was me, Coco, Jesse Boykins, Shameless Maya, and um, Damaris. Prince's, Damaris and mm. Prince's assistant. And then the one behind us was, I think, the bodyguards or something. So we're in here. I'm tired. I'm like falling asleep in the parking lot. We're like waiting forever, <laughs> waiting for Prince to get in his car. We literally waited in our cars like an hour. We drove out the parking lot and we're like escorted by, it's like a, a like motorcade. The, like, a motorcade. motorcade. Yes. Oh so my I'm God. like, Damn. I'm awake now. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm up. And so we get escorted to the House of Blues. And I remember walking out feeling so powerful. I couldn't wait to step my leg out. I'm like, Of course. Oh, I was, I'm like, that, okay, I never feel myself. But that was the one time I was stoked about being part of an entourage. And oh, that was the yeah. one time where I was like, do people see me getting out this car? Because I'm getting out being part of Prince's crew. That's the only entourage <laughs> worth being a part of. You know what I mean? Oh, hell yeah. So we step out and now we're at this party and Janelle Monet was there. I don't know. There were a lot of people there. But like, that's when we first met Janelle Monet, Or we kind of knew her already, her already, but we got to spend more time with her, with Prince. Mm-hmm. And it was so, that night was beautiful. It was crazy. But then anyways, fast and forward. We went to Minnesota. He wanted to meet our moms. We brought our mom to Paisley Park. He wanted to meet our family. That's, and then he the also, most, that's so incredible. Yeah, and you then, guys are, honestly, you are right. The universe is, loves yeah. you. He wanted to play us the album before it came out. Oh. He wanted and, us to have a party. He's like, I know you haven't seen your friends. Invite your friends to Paisley Park and have a party. So we had a party at Paisley Park. Uh, oh, so you actually you took him up on the offer. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> And then towards the end of the party, we left our friends and he invited No, because he called. You can't have cell phones. That's why we remember everything. Right. Because around him, no cell phones were allowed. That's incredible. So that's the only reason why I remember so many details. So when you're in there, no phones are allowed. And we get a phone call. His bodyguard in the kitchen was like, Prince is on the phone for you. So he's like, hey, you guys, I'm in this like meeting with a label or with somebody. somebody big. Someone major. He's like, I'm so sad I can't hang out with you guys, but let's try to hang out freely but I'm really jealous because I, I heard that you listened to my band's album but you haven't listened to my album. That's so Can you good. please leave the party and go to the studio and I really want your feedback on my album. Wow. So <laughs> And then he wanted a pair of glasses. And then he was like I need some glasses to cover my third eye. That's the tightest thing. So you guys designed this custom pair. We designed the glasses and fast forward it took us about a year and a half to develop those frames. And even every time he came to New York he always we always got phone calls at like 3 a.m. 4 a.m. Prince is sending a car for you guys to come to dinner. And so we did that I remember over one time 10 times. We and doing- he, he would do pop-up performances. And Coco and I would always get a phone call to like be backstage. And like we knew before everybody, like me, Coco, Damaris, Damaris and a Maya. couple Maya and a couple other people would be the only ones. Like we would be the ones backstage with this band. And um, it was like a family. Yeah. Purple, we would say like the purple family. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. fast forward, we make the glasses. And Prince was like, it was crazy because we actually launched the glasses two days before he passed away. And he tweeted the link to our website. Just a couple of days before he passed away. A couple days before he passed away. And so for us, we didn't, we didn't believe in selling, like on optimizing on someone's death. And so we actually X'd out all of our marketing efforts. And we said his one tweet would do the selling because we didn't believe in, right. you know, 
marketing something after someone passed away, we had every press outlet reaching out to us. We denied and ignored every press outlet because we felt we didn't have, it wasn't part of our integrity to do press interviews because we had a product that was selling. Right. And so it would have felt like we were doing that to sell a product. And we knew that Prince didn't like that. We literally denied every press interview. It was every press outlet, every news outlet, everybody was reaching out to us. And we were like, you know what? His one tweet is going to sell the product. And that's all we're going to do. We didn't post it on social media. We didn't do any newsletters. We did all that prior. But then on that day and afterwards, while the product was selling, we're like, his tweet would do it. That's that's the right way to do it. I think you made the right decision. I love those stories. I'm so happy that you were able to tell them and that you were able to spend all that time with friends. Mm-hmm. Y'all are busy. Busy, very, busy, busy. busy. I see you opened up a new retreat in the Catskills called the Lorca, named after the Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca. Yes. That's dope. You're producing, DJing. Yep. Yep. I saw you're on a children's television show. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> How, what else are you working on? Or tell me about those projects, yeah. whatever you decide. Well, you I'm so happy to. you're saying this because Coco is so hard on us sometimes. I think we're harder than <laughs> each other. I was like, are we working hard enough? <laughs> Girl. So, <laughs> you want to talk about the Lorca? Yeah, so the, we're super excited about the Lorca. It was our, it's our first time investing in real estate. And what I'm stoked about is that, you know, in our family, no one owns property. And I think that it's so important as young people in America that like we need to not be buying designer clothes. And if we're spending money on designer, we need to be investing in real estate or investing our money into other things. That was the first thing is that we were super stoked. And we knew that uh, we love going to the Catskills. Prior to buying the property, though, we didn't really spend too much time up there. But um, we knew we wanted to buy. We wanted to buy just a house there just to have a weekend home. But then when we found this property, we were like, hold on. This can be a new business. It's four houses on three acres. It's Breezy and I and we have two other partners. It's really beautiful. We did. We gut renovated all the spaces and we've partnered up with some really cool companies. And so Brooklinen is one of our partners. They're providing all the linen and sheets and bedware and towels. We partnered up with Year and Day. They're doing all the dishware. We partnered up with Miro. They create these digital art frames. Um, who else? Backdrop. Backdrop. They're doing our interior and exterior paint. And so we're giving a new way for people to go up to the Catskills and vacation. And I think that the way consumer behavior is changing, people like to know what brands they're being associated for with. For sure. So it's also part of the experience that you can go into the Lorca. It's a very minimal space. So you can go in there Super minimal. Each space has Instagrammable. Own, very Instagrammable. I've seen the Instagram. It is yes. Instagrammable. It's, Even, a, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's so Instagrammable that like everyone that tagged us from the last retreat, like if you just look at our tags, how is every image like beautiful? Right. Like most tagged images aren't curated, but ours just looks like it because it's Instagrammable. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of stoked about it. I and love it. Last weekend was our first retreat. So I think it's so dope. Yeah, so it's going to be open for people to rent it out individually. It'll be on like, you know, all the renter, mm-hmm. like Airbnb, Airbnb and all that stuff. But then also, um, you it's know, available for companies to do retreats. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of brands are doing influencer and press retreats now. So oh. it's the right timing. And then DJing, you're dropping, you're DJing, producing. We're producing. We have, we're going to have a new song coming out and, that we produced that's coming out first quarter. We've been DJing a lot, practicing our, our skills a lot. DJing at really cool events. But I think the cool part is that we're just activating the Coke One Breezy brand. You know, some the, people The dope part that I really love about this is that we double dip and we triple dip. And Might as well quadruple dip. Yeah, yeah. we even quadruple dip. And I think 
when you have multiple talents, the goal is we, we have one ultimate goal, which is to activate the Coco and Breezy brand. So the cool part is like, for example, we did like a really dope DJ gig with American Express and Delta. But then they had this really cool um, brand activation brand activation where they also highlighted brands and products and products. And they had our glasses involved. And so a lot of things that we're doing on the DJ side of things, we also get higher on the influencer side and the product side and the brand side of like showing our products. Or even we did a, a billboard and campaign with Glenavet and we were in billboards all around the U.S., but they also had like our Instagram name and Showed that we're founders of Coco and Breezy Eyewear. Right, right. But then so. we also DJed the launch for Fashion Week. And then they had a pop-up shop and they included our product. Yeah. Y'all so, are vertically integrated. Oh, we are, we are vertically, vertically integrated. <laughs> not just on production, but on everything else. Yeah. But I think the bigger portion too is that um, one of our biggest challenges is I feel like when men have multiple things going on, people don't question them. But for us, we get questioned so much all the time. Like, how do you guys do it all? But then when you meet a man that has multiple companies, they're like, oh, you're doing such a good job. You're killing it. Yeah, they call him a renaissance oh, man. you are yes. a renaissance man. And when they see us, they're like, how are you guys like, doing I'm all confused. that? I'm confused. I'm like, what are you confused about? I just work hard and have a great team. That's annoyingly sexist. Yeah. You know? It happens all the time. That's very annoying. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced a lot of sexism, do you think? Um, like inherent sexism? I mean, obviously it yeah. happens I mean, even by with, accident. Even with DJing. Radar. There's not a lot of, I mean, now there's more women in that space, but of course, like like any other space, it's male dominated. And so there's times where we'll be on a lineup with all men. And there's been times where sound guys will plug in the CDJs and they'll add like an aux cord because they think that we really can't. They're, they're assuming because we have an eyewear company and we're founders that, gonna that we're just going to like use our phones. Wow. So if they look us up prior and like before and they see that we're, we're founders of a company, They'll be like, oh, they're probably just like plugging in their phones. And then our manager has to be like, no, these girls rock. Mm-hmm. And they like DJ, DJ. Yeah. And I think that that what inspired Coco and I to really dive into the art of DJing is so that we can sh- prove our point by action. And so we made sure that we really like kind of like dived into like the technical side of it. And like even like setting up like anything can go wrong and I know how to fix it. Because we had to deal with asshole sound guys that are sexist. And that assume, like I've gotten arguments with sound guys where I know that they plug some shit up wrong. And I'm like, no, this is really nicely. I'm like, hey, like I actually think this court goes here. They're like, no, it doesn't. And, and then, then when, they, when they leave, I switch it up and I, I just fix it. And so those are certain things that we deal with. We don't allow it to like stop us, but we do know that it is an, a huge issue. And then we've also dealt with being in spaces where we're around suits and they always assume they don't know that we're founders of a company. And they're like, right. you know, uh, where's the party at? Like, where are the drugs? I'm like, one, first of all, I don't do drugs. Secondly, I have no idea where the party's at because I'm not a partier unless I'm, you know, behind the DJ booth. And like, third of all, I'm a founder of an eyewear company. What's your name? Right. You know, I and bet so, that feels good, though. Yeah, oh, it feels it does, so it feels good. Wonderful. Flex. And before I used to feel like I actually used to feel kind of insecure going into those spaces. Now I'm like, you know what? I don't like, cool. You can have your suit on. We're all humans. Judge me ahead of time, but let's have a conversation. Let's have an intellectual conversation and find out that like, we're talking about the same things. Just don't prejudge me on my looks. You know, and I think that that was something. I think we finally embraced it. Yeah, we embrace it now. I found that Coco and I before, maybe even just last year, if I was around my music friends, like we wouldn't tell them that we're founders of a company. Or if I was around my founder friends or like tech friends, I wouldn't tell them that we're DJing. 
And so I think that um, I'm more confident in the space now, now that we kind of have our accolades of like, in this campaign and we're DJing this hottest party and we have this person wearing our glasses and we're in this many stores. And that actually built up my confidence to be like, yeah. And when people are like, oh, so do you do it, each of them part-time? No, we do everything full-time. And we freaking crush it. You guys are are polyglots. (laughs) I've never Um, heard of that word. What's a polyglot? Polyglot, I just, I Googled it to make sure it was the right one. Uh, Polyglot (laughs) is knowing or using several languages. Ooh. But I think we're applying it to industrial polyglots or like lifestyle polyglots. Right. Where, you know, I love it. I think it's very cool. interesting because I knew that, the, you know, it's like it's an interesting kind of comparison. All right. Do you guys have any questions for me? Usually I don't take any. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm just kidding. How do you feel about wrapping it up? Yeah, let's, let's do it. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That was yeah, Coco thank and Breezy, you for having everyone. us. Keep up with Coco and Breezy on Instagram at Coco and Breezy. Check out their eyeglasses at Coco and Breezy Eyewear and visit their website, CocoandBreezy.com. If you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast and subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and Canal Street Market. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If you are, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists, dark mode, and personalized recommendations to help you discover your next favorite show. And the best part is, it's super easy to use. So do yourself a favor Go to the App Store, download Himalaya, and be sure to follow you people once you're there.